Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, sports fans. This is getting exciting. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. Welcome back. I'm Joshua Molina. And I'm Rishi K. Sherway. Today, we're talking about episode seven of season four, Election Night. It was written by Aaron Sorkin. The story is by David Gherkin and David Handelman. David Handelman, a friend of mine. And it was directed by Leslie Linka Glotter, terrific director with whom I've worked on more than one occasion. It first aired. Oh, all I wrote down was that it first aired. And you know what? I feel like that's good enough. You don't care <laughs> when it aired. It aired in 2002. No, I like that. I like knowing it, it aired in, on November 6th, 2002, which I think is a nice detail because it lines up with um, actual election week. Indeed. Here's the synopsis from Warner Brothers, the official synopsis. I like this because of the way they talk about you. Oh. Well, your character. On election day, Bartlett and his staff began counting exit poll votes across the country. In a conservative California congressional district, the results have important implications for Sam and a maverick Democratic campaign manager, Will Bailey. I like the sound of that. Meanwhile, Donna meets an intriguing Navy Lieutenant Commander, Jack Reese, who has been transferred to the White House as Deputy Military Aide. Played by Jack Nicholson impersonator, <laughs> Christian Slater. Just kidding, if you're listening, you're your own man and you're a terrific actor. <laughs> when I was watching the episode, I thought Christian Slater's voice reminds me of 538 Politics host Jody Avergan's voice. Hmm. Okay, maybe. Well, his eyebrows remind me of Jack Nicholson's. Actually, his, eye, his eyebrows don't remind me of Jack Nicholson's eyebrows. His eyebrows remind me of Jack Nicholson. <laughs> it's, it's an important distinction. Right. 
Speaking of Jack Reese, and for those who are parched and need another shot at home, there's a character, Captain Jack Ross, in A Few Good Men. And uh, he's the Marine Judge Advocate assigned to the Washington Navy Yard. And he was played by our guest today in uh, the original Broadway production of A Few Good Men, uh, Clark Gregg. What did you think of this episode? I liked this episode. I mean, my first impression was the first scene. I guess that makes sense. I thought the cold open might be a dream sequence. (laughs) (laughs) Like a bad trip that Josh Lyman is having after maybe some oysters Rockefeller that went bad or something. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, it turns out to be a prank, a rather elaborate prank. And I liked the way Leslie Linka-Glotter decided to film it. She's at, at a certain point, she's swooping. <laughs> We've got a steady cam kind of going around <laughs> and around, giving us the, the sense of the inner turmoil that Brad is in or uh, Josh Lyman is in as he uh, meets up with all these voters that seem to have incorrectly voted for the wrong person. <laughs> but it was well done. I guess I forget what a fan of pranking Aaron is. I don't know him in real life to have done much of it, but he writes a good prank. There are lots of pranks in The West Wing. Yeah, they're very well thought out. I'm real, I realized as I watched this episode, I really should consult with him. You know, I think I'm good at execution and sometimes mm. coming up with stuff, but he's, uh, he's like on another level. Yeah. I think together we could do fiendish things. It makes me think, is there anyone you would want as a blood enemy less than Aaron Sorkin? Well, no, given my career, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't have him turn against me. What's your macro take on this episode? I'm guessing you didn't like it so much. Oh, I love this episode. Oh, I I, I sensed from the way you asked me. I guess I don't know you as well as I thought. I liked this episode. It's a good episode. I wonder if this will surprise you. But my favorite parts of this episode are the scenes with Orlando, Anthony's friend. Oh, yes. Omar Benson Miller as Orlando Skittles. Uh, (laughs) It's a ballers reunion. A pre-union. It is a pre-union. Very good. And of course, Richard Schiff also on ballers. Exactly. So it's a three-way pre-union a three pre-union. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, of ballers, or ballser, as the correct plural. <laughs> I enjoy the show, Ballers, very much, and I was delighted to see them together again, having never been before. Together again for the first time. Right. Which reminds me of the speech that the president gives, the moment when he goes off the prompter towards the end. Yes. He basically says, together again for the first time, he says... The promise of this country is the birthright of all the people. We've achieved so much together, always believing, always knowing that America could be made new again. And so it was, and so it will be again. Mm-hmm. So you're saying he's talking about ballers. <laughs> he was talking about Richard Schiff, Dulé Hill, mm-hmm. and Omar Benson Miller. As Orlando Skittles. Orlando <laughs> at one point refers to Charlie as boss, which I thought was prescient because, in fact, Mr. Seifert, Dulé's character in Ballers, is Charles Green's boss. You're not ever going to get off of this Ballers thing. <laughs> Just trying to drum up uh, business for Ballers. And I like saying Ballers. Elizabeth Warren did a shout out to Ballers. Did you see that? No. It was pretty funny. Yeah, where she said that Ballers was her favorite TV show. <laughs> <laughs> where? In what context? On her Facebook page, she wrote, I stand with the Writers Guild of America for fair pay and decent health care because it's the right thing to do and because Bruce and I can't wait for the next season of Ballers to start. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I like it. That was real. 
I like very much Brad's pratfall as he smashes into or walks into Orlando. Made me laugh out loud. All right, we're going to have to wait until the secret service. Whoa, sorry, man. That wasn't cool. <laughs> Did you see that Brad was called Brad Whitfield in the... Uh... Oh, I can't believe I didn't amplify that. People were... <laughs> and I thank that. I love that we, ha- we have uh, among our legions of fans are people that are looking to just tee up for me uh, any opportunity to mock Brad. They may be providing mm-hmm. him with opportunities to come at me as well. I don't know. They may be working both sides. But yeah, I had a f- a several people point that out to me on Twitter like, any comment? <laughs> <laughs> I-, I thought I'd best to let it speak for itself. But yes, he was on the red carpet somewhere. <laughs> identified as brad whitfield <laughs> brad's pratfall is so go- so this is one of the reasons why all of the scenes with orlando and anthony are i don't know there's something so pure about them i really love them they're so sweet and <laughs> josh's fall to the ground is great and his reaction as he recovers but then this line their exchange where he says you should play football hey man i'm trying you know but i had an open paps and that's the way that goes yeah. <laughs> and Josh just says, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that part. I also love when Donna calls Josh pumpkin patch. Pumpkin patch. Is there anything I can do to get you to go to the movies? Cute. It's really cute. You know who else is cute? Josh Molina. Am I cute in this episode? These last two episodes, every time you've come on screen, I say, look at that cutie. Who's that cutie? <laughs> oh. I watched this episode as I sometimes do with the closed captioning on, just so I can anticipate things that you might say. (laughs) Yes, I do always. And there were a couple of things that changed for me because of that. Mm. One was I realized a word that had kind of slipped by me before stood out this time because I don't know this word. Really? Yeah. The president says, I got to get back. You can hawk a lab for a while. I've seen this episode, of course, many times, but that word had never jumped out at me before the way that it did this time because I don't know what that word is. I noticed the same thing because I want to say that's because it's not a word. Although, in fact, it is a word. It is not the word they want to use here. I think it's an attempt to use the Yiddish word hawk. You know, don't hawk me means don't pester me, don't bother me, don't keep on at me. There's a classic Jewish phrase, hakmir nicht kein chinik, don't beat on a teapot. Hmm. <laughs> and so hawk kind of means beat on something and beating on a teapot means, you know, stop annoying me. It usually means stop pestering me about something, which would be have been quite an apt phrase or word to use in the scene in the West Wing. For some reason, the writer, I guess Aaron, <laughs> wrote Hockle. And I don't know if it's supposed to be Bartlett's uh, clumsy attempt to deploy Yiddish or just someone's, maybe Aaron's mistaken attempt. I did look up Hockle, which means to damage cordage by, <laughs> right, <laughs> by twisting term. against the lay. Or it can also mean to disable by cutting the tendons of the ham. I don't think our esteemed... Um, Telepay writer meant to use the word in that uh, sense. I think it was an attempt to say hawk. Stop hawking me. I like that. I like the idea that it's the it's misemployed Yiddish. That warms the hockles of my heart. <laughs> Nothing like hot hockles. <laughs> Here's another one that caught me. At one point, Sam says to Josh, Hey, when I said exits before, I meant tracking, and I'm pretty sure they did the last one about a week ago and then left town. Yeah, yeah, they may have called that pot a little early. Watching the closed captions, I thought, Hut. This whole time I thought it was not a golf metaphor, but a poker metaphor. And that he had said, they may have called that pot a little early. Interesting. See how much you learn when you watch with the CCs like I do? 
Mm-hmm. I still feel like the poker metaphor would have worked as well. Sure, but maybe not. Can you call a pot too early? Well, you call a bet more than calling a pot. Okay, sure. Unless you're playing pot lemon and someone bets the pot, and I guess you could then call the pot, but... All right, don't hockle me. <laughs> Sorry, I don't hockle you about that. <laughs> Another word choice that I liked is that Anthony gets to use the phrase not for nothing, which I think of as such a CJ or certainly like a Bartlett administration kind of phrase. And I felt like, oh, he's, he's part of the family too. That's funny. He says not for nothing. To me, I felt like, come on, you should have pulled that. Don't put that in his mouth. <laughs> you you, you, you I mean, caught it as well. Oh, for sure. As a Sorkinism. Yeah. And it a little bit bumped on it. Although I suppose <laughs> I decided to take it as, you know, he's been hanging around Dulé or hanging right. around Charlie rather. And uh, so he's picked up the terminology that our gang likes to use. Mm-hmm. In some ways, there's not that much to do in this episode, except for crack a lot of jokes. That's true, which I enjoy. Crackle a lot of jokes. Sorry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple of a little sports night appearance. We've seen Tim Davis Reed before, who plays yes. Mark, the reporter. Now we also have Ron Ostro, who played, I should probably know, he's one of my oldest friends. <laughs> he was another guy in the uh, control room on sports night. There's a will in almost everything Aaron writes, and Ron was the will of Sports Night. Where there's an Aaron, there's a will. There you go. Ron, I've known for many, 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 many years. He goes back to Westchester and that whole gang. He lives in Scarsdale and went to high school with Aaron. He and Aaron were roommates, I believe, for quite a while in New York City. And (laughs) I was remembering this funny story. To mention, I know that part of the, uh, the West Wing Weekly drinking game includes taking a shot every time I mention the play A Few Good Men. But during the play A Few Good Men, in the original cast, I was one of five guys who played Marines. We did a lot of moving furniture around and standing at parade rest and played little roles in addition to understudying the leads. And I took over one of them for the last eight months of the run. But what would happen is Ron Ostro played the Marine who would stand in the tower. This tower was not even really on stage. It was behind a scrim. So depending on the lighting, you would either not see him at all, or then you would see a guy just facing upstage back to the audience, holding uh, his gun and kind of keeping an eye. You know, there's a lot of, there's talk about, uh, you know, not on my watch. And, you know, he stands on a wall. And right. Makes, so he, he was that Marine on a wall. He's basically a part of the set essentially and we would do lots of horrible things like i bought these little disc guns guns that shoot little plastic discs and we would shoot him during the play (laughs) up in the tower and you know he's supposed to be this you know solid marine you know you can't be flinching so he would just have to take it we would shoot him in the face and if i had to go on as an understudy i would go on for that role ron would come down from the tower and play my roles And they would stick a mannequin in the tower. (laughs) Our stage manager, uh, David, would have to announce when understudies went on. I used to beg him to say, you know, the role normally played by Michael Dolan will be played by Joshua Molina. The role normally played by Joshua Molina will be played by Ron Ostro. And the role normally played by Ron Ostro will be played by a dummy. (laughs) But but he would never do it. Uh, But Ron's there. He makes it onto the West Wing. I'm looking at Ron's credits right now. He and I are already on a first name basis. Apparently. I'm looking at Ron Astro's credits and you've done a lot of things together. You have a lot of shared credits. That is true. He was also in Bullworth. He was? Yes. (laughs) And he was also in Scandal. Yes. 
He stands in on Scandal and has appeared uh, on camera. He's played uh, a couple roles on the show as well. He's played uh, some Secret Service guys. Yeah. Um, he's a great actor and a terrific guy and uh, one of my oldest friends. And the name Ron, spoiler alert, I won't give much detail, but remember when we call back a few episodes from now, will be wielded, I think, by Aaron as a joke on Ron Ostro uh, later in this series. Hmm. I don't know what you're referring to. And you don't no. remember? Oh, fantastic. Okay, soon enough we'll discuss it. Okay. Just remember that. Okay. I thought this part was really funny, this exchange between Josh and Sam. In your life, you have never been on time to this meeting. Yeah, it wasn't, actually. I was just incredibly late to the meeting right before it. Fantastic. So clever. Yeah. Here's the thing that I learned from the podcast that informed the way I watched this episode, the way I would not have before. Normally, I was right there with Anthony. Who's Officer Cupcake? Oh, yes. Of course I thought of you. When did you start talking like Mickey Spillane? I don't know. Who's Officer Krupke? Okay. And he's referring to Officer Krupke. Now I know who Officer Krupke is. We've already name-checked the good officer. Mm-hmm. I did like the line, Okay, you've seen a musical. I thought, merchandise, it'd be a good shirt for you. That's true. Well, shirt for you that yeah, I should look at. I guess so. I wrote down Balzac. Where, where is Balzac mentioned in this episode? Like Honoré de Balzac? Correct. Very nice. Ding, ding, ding. There's a thing where uh, Debbie... <laughs> Debbie says to Josh when she's berating him for not following the rules. The email, which is exactly this long, by the way, in case as a boy you had some sort of frightening experience with Balzac and that's why you didn't read it. Ah, well, I wrote it down for two reasons. One, I believe in The Music Man, there's some, these kind of uh, old biddies are complaining about books that they want banned from the library and one of them just keeps saying, Balzac! Of course, I shouldn't tell you this, but she advocates dirty books. Dirty books? Chaucer! Rabelais! Balzac! <laughs> so there's that. And two, have you read by any chance? Because we haven't thrown out a good book recommendation in a long time. But Balzac wrote a novel called Per Gorio, Father Gorio. No, the only Balzac that I read was... Maybe it was Per Gorio. No, no, Colonel Chabert. That's what I read. Okay. I think the only book I've read by Balzac is uh, Peregorio, but it's a fantastic book. It's a book for a very long time. Somehow, I don't know why, I got into an early spat with my wife where I was trying to force her to read it. I think she didn't like it, and so I wouldn't read Ethan Frome. And I, I think, as a result, I've never read Ethan Frome, and she's never read Peregorio. But what, really what I want to say is that our listeners should consider reading Peregorio. I remember it being an incredibly great book about a guy who's put himself in a horrible uh, set a situation uh, financially in order to make his daughter's lives better. It's a great book. How many pages do you think? How many pages? Yeah. I want to say it's about 250. Why do you ask? Because Debbie name checks Balzac as if he's mm. Tolstoy, really. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. I forgot that that was the uh, context. Well, let's see. The uh, Oxford World's Classic Edition has 304 pages. Reasonable. Here's something I noticed. I need uh, some scalp forensic help from our listeners. I think Rob Lowe is starting to grow his hair out for post-West Wing work <laughs> in this episode. So I just noticed something a little different. It's a little longer. And mm -hmm. I think I think he's looking to the next job hair-wise. That's all I got. Okay. Here's a question about Sam's next job. Sure. Sam's next potential job. Not Rob Lowe's, but Sam's. Right. He says in conversation with Donna that one of the reasons why he doesn't want to run for Wild Seat in the 47th for the runoff election is because 
he would like to someday run for office. You know, he says... Because the alternative is taking 90 days off to go home, lose by 20 points to a Republican committee chair I hate, and never be able to run for public office for real, which is something I maybe wouldn't mind doing one day. And maybe I was distracted by a bumblebee this day in civics, but I don't know why would that be the case? Why wouldn't he be able to run for public office for real if he runs in this election and loses? Oh, I think he just figures it would be a uh, strike against him to have lost his first campaign. That I understand. That's how I took it. But that's so different from never be able to run. I mean, there are plenty of people who have lost elections and then later won them. Hmm, that's a good point. I didn't bump on it when I heard it. I think maybe it's a, a little insight into the perfectionism of Sam Seaborn. Hmm. I'm thinking about Mitt Romney is considering a run for senator in Utah. And uh, he's run for all kinds of offices in all kinds of different places. And, you know, he's been a governor of Massachusetts. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I would argue that resilience after defeat is uh, a great quality to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why is it so unthinkable for Sam? Right. It's a good question. Should we talk about vote swapping? I want you to help me reverse engineer or be my external hard drive. I know that I was very close to trying to pull off a vote swap. And I ultimately decided not to do it. So when, that must have been in the California primary? In the recall election? No, it was, I think, the presidential election. It was the presidential election. So what was it? Maybe I was willing to trade my vote for Hillary because I was assuming that she would win. Oh, I it see. It wasn't I in see. the general. I think it must have been in the Democratic primary. But I can't remember what You mean the, in 2016 this was something you did? Indeed. You tried to convince someone to No, vote I almost for did it. There even there was like some website where you could do it. And I guess I would have traded I don't know what it was. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember what the hell it was. And finally I decided it just wasn't ethical. Nor did I have any guarantee that it but why was I even lured into that? I can't remember what the goal, what the incentive was. I think I guess I remember feeling that I could trade my Hillary vote and feel confident that she would win. So in California. Right, in California. To make a better right. story, <laughs> if I had, even not all my faculties, but more than I currently possess. <laughs> not a great story, but one thing I will say is, having cast your vote already, hard to make a, you've lost your leverage in terms of a vote swap. Mm -hmm. It's an honor thing. No, it's a stupidity thing. <laughs> it's a dumbness thing. Why would anybody swap votes when the other person already voted? Well, she did vote for Richie in Wisconsin, where it's, you know, more consequential. There's no way that Richie was going to win the district. Right, but she already voted. <laughs> in other words, you don't have something to swap. You only That's have true. something to swap when you haven't voted yet. Right, it's true. Right. It's true. There's no incentive for the. It's like saying, you know, will you give me that football uh, if I give you this sandwich I already ate? <laughs> no, no, I won't. Or rather, here is a sandwich. <laughs> now will you give me a football in exchange for the sandwich? You already have the sandwich. Mm, that's a better <laughs> yeah that's better that's not as funny but it's a better analogy <laughs> but it worked it did work because christian slater is all about honor i'd like to go back to the donna moment with sam that scene because there is some really blatant terrible empty coffee cup acting going on there Ooh, in which scene in the scene where sam brings donna some coffee he says, oh, I was at the thing. When she's out there yelling at people to try and get them to trade votes with her. Right. Yes. No, I do remember that now. Yes. Right. So he brings her coffee uh -huh. and he hands it to her. He opens his up to blow on it and then take a sip of it. And everything else that he's doing, fantastic. The delivery of his lines, everything is great. But the coffee cup, you know, there's a, 
it came to my attention a little while ago, I think through an article on Slate. I think that was the first place that I found out about it, but that there's this phenomenon of people with empty coffee cups acting like they're full or just people walking into scenes with what's supposed to be a cup full of coffee. And there's no way there's anything in the cup. There's no weight in it. There's no liquid in it. That's inexcusable. I mean, why wouldn't there be liquid in it? What's what's happening with the properties department that they could put liquid in it? <laughs> it should know. be steaming liquid because there, we have that technology. I will put up a link to this slate. Oh, article. I'm very curious to read it because I'm obsessed generally with actor eating. Oh. Because some actors, for lack of a better phrase, tend to make a meal out of it. <laughs> it's just like a whole school of people who are like really eating for the camera. Uh-huh. The Brad Pitts of the world. Mm. Oh, is he particularly? Constantly. Guilty? Oh, he eats all the time. All the time. But convincingly so, or see, if it's for me, it's just like, sometimes I feel like they're putting on a show. Like, we get it, you're eating. Just mm-hmm. just eat normally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will point everyone to this Slate article. The headline is, The Most Infuriating Thing on Television, Unrealistic Acting with Empty Coffee Cups. Wow, interesting. By Miles McNutt and Daniel Hubbard. They even had a hashtag going, hashtag empty cup awards hashtag. <laughs> and then there's a video this empty cup awards video that shows all these different egregious examples. This one is not necessarily egregious, but now I notice it. I'm dying to see it because why wouldn't there be liquid in there? I don't know. It's mind boggling. The Yiddish word is actually mind bog. (laughs) All the Toby stuff with Andy was great where they go to, uh, (laughs) they go to the ultrasound and Josh tells him to grease the nurse. I thought that was very funny. Toby, when you get there, it's a good idea to slip the nurse something. Tell her you're hoping for a smooth second trimester. You grease the nurse? He's kidding. G- give me one second, would you? I'll catch right up. So what do you think, like 50 bucks? I don't know. It's your first. It's twins. I don't know. I think I'd give her 100. Yeah, okay. Yes, very funny. One general thing about this episode, which is that, you know, often the show, or more often than not, the show tips more to the political uh the show tips more toward the political than the personal. And this was refreshing in the way that it tipped uh, more towards the personal lives of the characters. That's true. Yeah. Which I enjoyed. Let me ask you this about the whole Toby Andy thing. Why is the news getting out such a potential scandal? Because she is an unmarried lady, a single mother. I thought that we had come a long way from the days of Murphy Brown, even in the era 15 years ago. That's what I thought. I kept trying to put myself back there and think, is 2002, was that, uh, were the social mores such that this really would have been such a big scandal? And I, I didn't know if I quite bought that aspect of this episode. I mean, I understand that there might be some people who would feel that way, but I was surprised that CJ bought into it. It'd be nice if we could announce a wedding. Yes. What? What? Huh? Yeah, I bumped on that. Mm-hmm. I understand why Toby would like to announce a wedding. Right. He's in love with her. He just wants to get married. Right. One more thing about Jack Reese. I felt bad for him because he said he had never had the chance to vote an election and he was really looking forward to pulling that lever. But it had been established in the cold open that there is no lever being pulled. Good point. And I thought he's in for a disappointment. Okay. Here's something that we teased in the last episode. Yes. And now it is time to discuss it. The die's been cast, big brother. Yes. I was surprised to read that in the second script, and I thought, oh, there probably shouldn't have been an, maybe a little undercurrent of flirting in the first episode, which I don't think was explicit, but I certainly, I thought maybe there was romantic potential there, and then uh, I thought, wow, well, that was an inappropriate thought even to have had 
when, when contemplating my first episode. I think you're right, though. It feels like a shift that doesn't feel like that was there. I mean, when Will goes to explain to Sam who wrote the jokes in the speech, he says, see that woman over there? Her name is Elsie Snuffin. And yeah, Sam says, I found her at my house because she's my sister. <laughs> yeah. She was the 11th man on a 10-man writing staff for a sitcom. They weren't using her. Why staff. not say also we're related? I've known her since she was born. Well, as you posited last episode, I believe it's a bit of retconning. Uh, yes. I think uh, they didn't make that decision that there was a family relationship until this episode. Right. I do take some points away for this big brother. It just feels like clunky exposition. It is a little clunky, yeah. I never like it in any TV show. I'm surprised to see it in the in the West Wing. It happens a lot. It's like, hey, sis. Mm-hmm. I just noticed that actually, I think in the first episode of Happy Valley, it's a BBC show, which is superb. But it has a little bit of a, in the first episode, there's just... Uh, Somebody tells someone else how that person is related to them, just so that we can kind of go on with the show and get it. Yes. Um, so it does happen. It happens in the best of uh, productions. It happens all the time. Because, frankly, it's a huge problem. I mean, there is information you need to get out, although I, I don't know particularly why. I, I, don't, I can't even remember in episodes subsequent to this why it's important for us to know or important for them even to be half siblings maybe to remove the possibility of a romantic relationship it's possible that uh danica went to them and said if that's where you're headed forget it now that i've seen him write <laughs> <laughs> us related he's my brother no but yeah i don't know that would be rough somebody actually says the word trump don't try to trump me here there's a yes. literal trump i i moment yes just just the word being <laughs> yes. said don't trump me here yep Donna said Trump, but really what made it feel like an IIA moment is the line that she says afterwards. She says, don't try to trump me here. It's not a battle. We're in this together. And I thought, mm. I -I -I. I -I -I. <laughs> Will makes it rain. That's this episode, right? Yes. Yes. That was fun to shoot. I laughed to myself. I tiffled when I watched the scene because I remember <laughs> that Aaron was not very pleased with how it, how it had been staged and shot and perhaps acted. I remember, I think he called down to, I think it was Alex Graves, uh, who did not direct this episode, but producing director that got mm -hmm. the phone call. Aaron, having looked at the dailies, basically said, I, I wasn't trying to imply that Will has mystical powers. Will! Now! Jesus! I didn't know I could do that! <laughs> <laughs> so how did he envision the scene happening? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it was more... Uh, I don't know if it was in the timing of it. I mean, it really plays. Like, I go, now! <laughs> right. <laughs> and crack of lightning yeah. and i think it might have been a timing thing perhaps it was the fact that it goes from zero to deluge right. in a nanosecond <laughs> um but i do remember aaron being slightly miffed at how it had been done and i guess it was the kind of thing where it's probably expensive and it's certainly a big deal to reshoot a scene like that so so right. that was that okay here's a small detail about production how do you shoot a scene like that well aaron has put me in the rain a couple times uh right had a great rain scene in uh, sports night as well with paul right, marshall with jenny yes and it's one of my favorite things just because it makes me feel like a kid, like just the wonder of filmmaking. They have these incredibly tall, I think they're called rain towers that, yeah, I don't know, they're 30 feet in the air or something like that. Do they look like giant shower heads? 
Kind of. And they're way high up and that flip of a switch and uh, and it's pouring on you. And uh, of course, there are all sorts of concomitant issues when using these rain towers. Like everything's wet <laughs> once you use them once. Right. So I can't even remember really what a reset entails, but it's amazing what the crew can do in order to have a second or third go at things like this. But you don't do it 20 times, or at least not in my experience. Yeah. Well, old one take Molina is what Jack Warner used to call you. There you go. Tremendous amount of fun filming that scene with uh, Danica. I love being in the fake rain. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like the idea that I did have a superpower. (laughs) (laughs) The president gets that victory glass of scotch. Yes. When they find out that he's going to win New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And then he puts it on the table without a coaster. Oh. President Bartlett. That table is probably from right Queen you know, Elizabeth, eighteen thirty-five, and came was made <laughs> from the timbers of George Washington's teeth or something like that. And, <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. You should have had better coaster etiquette. President Bartlett, on the more solemn side of things, is having some physical side effects of MS, and it's sort of heartbreaking to watch. And I think it's a very, very good physical performance from Martin Sheen. It's very subtly and uh, convincingly done. Yeah. I thought all of that part of the plot was really well depicted and plotted too. The fact that the coincidence of Debbie being sensitive to potential oncoming effects of uh, MS, this is the kind of thing that we have just criticized in the recent like, last few, a couple episodes where, oh, this thing happens and it feels like too much of a coincidence. Mm-hmm. But here, the coincidence is part of the plot in this really organic and wonderful way. Debbie, I have to ask you, are we talking about, did you bring it up because you noticed, is there some particular thing today you noticed? No, sir. Did yeah, there's something very, very uh, tender and vulnerable about that moment between uh, the president and Debbie. Mm-hmm. And I like uh, the way Leslie also shot that moment. It's kind of from the outer office all the way through, and he's still mm-hmm. looking out, and it's a good shot. And this idea of, for the first time, addressing really to her face that she's replacing Mrs. Landingham, that there was someone here before her. I thought that was really a lovely moment, even though it was sort of painful, this idea that the president accuses Debbie of thinking that Mrs. Landingham might have been a rube and that, you know, she's going to come up here and whip this place into shape. I love her response to that. You and I haven't met. In my life, I never would have thought she was a rube. Yeah. And Lily Tomlin, her work is so precise and her timing is right on, spot on. Yeah. The fact that Christian Slater is on the show, I thought, you know, that's a big guest star. That's a big get. Indeed. And there have been some guest stars, but in the background is like this insane casting that Lily Tomlin is in this show. It's crazy. One of the guest stars is just, you know, coming in and out, you know, it's Lily Tomlin. Yeah, it is. It's remarkable. It's less remarkable when you're an actor and you realize how little great writing there is to go around. Right. And dialogue that Aaron writes attracts actors. This is the kind of stuff actors want. So I totally get why people sign on. And given the way Aaron writes, you sign on before you really know what you're doing. Right. (laughs) Okay, whatever. Whatever you have in mind for me, if you're writing it, I'm in. It's a tremendous, like, sixth man to have on your bench. Yep, indeed. Going to another sport. Back to football. Sure. One of the reasons why I love the Orlando Kettle stuff in this episode so much is... Skittles. The moment when they're in line waiting to vote. Yes. 
And Orlando talks about football in a way that I thought was a lovely analogy for how our characters treat their jobs. Why does a guy who's heading off to the Big Ten care about playing St. Erasmus Academy on Saturday? You're going to be playing Michigan and Penn State. I don't know. It's what I do on Saturdays. Hey, you know what? I know I'm not the sharpest tool in the box or nothing, but try rushing the quarterback. Know what I'm saying? You're not going to get there. You're not going to touch him. And I thought in that little what could have been really like kind of a throwaway exchange. There was some seed of the entire show, the entire series in that, which is that if there's something that you're dedicated to, if there's something that you love, it transforms from more than just being a way that you spend your time or your job. It becomes like a vocation and a calling. It's sort of like the birthday message that they have to write. You know, they just want to nail it. It seems like this trivial That's what they do. thing. And yeah, and if you and when you do it with joy and a sense of duty. And pride in your work. It doesn't matter what the scale of the thing is. It's what you do. Very nice. Yes. And I think uh, that's a rich moment because Aaron doesn't try to explicitly tie it to just those uh, things that you pointed out. Because it right. exists on its own if you want to find it. Right. It's just, this is the attitude of people who we like on this show. I found myself rooting for Orlando so much the whole episode. And I like also how the physicality of Omar Benson Miller, he's just so large, <laughs> but he uses his body well. There's kind of almost a uh, grace to him. And there's something funny even about the way he goes into the uh, voting booth. He's kind of still sticking out of it. Yes, <laughs> it's like, I, love that. I thought that was brilliant. I don't know if that was just a by necessity. That's that's how much space he took up. But it seemed to me like almost that that's what they wanted. Right. It's like the, the little the little was... curtain is like kind of up <laughs> yeah. on his back. Exactly. It was well done. It really was. And then his joy at the uh, having voted brought him such joy that he wants to do it again. It's kind of a very cute moment yeah it's so sweet the last scene too really crushed me there are going to be more days like this it starts now it's going to be harder this time yeah i know we could still have tonight though right you got lots of nights smart people who love you are going to have your back and the president this entire episode has been kind of confronting his defeat he's won the election but he's dealing with the impending defeat of his body by MS. Yes. And so in this moment that's supposed to be victorious, you can see this fragility, the way he asks, we can still have tonight though, right? And then Starker Channing kills me when she says, you got lots of nights. In my notes, I wrote down a crying emoji. <laughs> it's a great and rich relationship that they have. And I like this episode because we're getting the personal side amplified in a way that we don't usually. And I think the show benefits from the fact that we don't usually get this. And so it's uh, the import of these kinds of moments are magnified when we do touch down on them. Mm -hmm. Josh, have you ever used an emoji in your life? I have indeed. Yeah. I fought them for a long time, but yeah, I do use them now. I like to use them also just out of context. <laughs> So like, you know, it was great to see you today, eggplant inchworm. <laughs> eggplant inchworm really means something. Probably in, in, in some culture, but I don't know what it means. Uh, well, eggplant is the emoji that you, that's used for a man's penis. Oh, it is. Well, it does look phallic. And so to combine that with the inchworm. Oh, <laughs> I'm saying I have a small d every time. <laughs> it was great to see you today. I'm hung like a field mouse. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll start doing soccer ball Israeli flag. Mm -hmm. In reference to the West Wing episode when the two American teenagers are targeted. I thought it was just a way of saying that I have one testicle and I'm circumcised. 
Any two emojis. I wrote that emoji down and I, I wondered if you would disapprove of it. And then I, as I was <laughs> asking you this, I almost said, in your life, have you ever used an emoji? The way that Josh says, oh, in your in life, your you've life. never been. <laughs> now let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk to Clark Gregg. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code WESTWING, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash WESTWING. And now back to the show. Okay, we're back, and that means it's time to welcome to the show an old and dear friend of mine. He's a super talented actor, writer, and director, and an all-around swell guy. He plays Mike Casper on the West Wing, it's time to welcome Clark Gregg. Thanks so much for doing this. My great pleasure. We finally got you. Twitter's very excited to have you. That's very nice of Twitter. I was just listening to Red Mass, and I was like, these f***ers are saying really nice stuff. <laughs> we do love you. <laughs> just because I know I'm, they know I'm coming on. No, it's not it's true. Be obsequious. <laughs> no, it's not true. You can go, you can go further back to previous it's uh, true. Casper episodes. We, we recorded that, I think, before I knew, at least, that Josh had reached you and you had agreed to do the episode. That's true, actually. Well, let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get into it. Hey, Scrump. There's only one ground rule, Josh. Yes. <laughs> Not that nickname. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you know the origin of that, that our nicknames seem to be interchangeable. We call each other Scrump and Bump or Scrumpy and Bumpy, although it's unclear who's which. And do you remember where that, the origin story of that, those nicknames? I don't really. I just know they sound dirty and drug addicted. <laughs> they do, but they're not. It's a hard G story. We were rehearsing for the Broadway production of A Few Good Men, and we were in some sort of rehearsal hall near a bunch of, there was like a basket full of costumes, and we put on ridiculous hats, and we just decided we looked like scrumpy <laughs> and bumpy. And do you remember who, which was which? <laughs> no, it was never quite clear. We can, you can use them interchangeably, hmm. which I feel is a sign of our uh, close friendship. <laughs> I thought it was kind of cool and meta that we had nicknames and that they were interchangeable. Yeah. And now that you say it, I remember that there were some really weird-looking hillbilly hats. Give me the background on that. How did you first meet? Uh, Clark um, and I? Yes. That would be in the Broadway production of A View Good Men. What's your uh, Sorkin origin story? How'd you get that job? I was running the Atlantic Theater Company as a cocky 26 or 7-year-old. I don't know why I was cocky, because we had no theater and rarely did plays. But we would go to Vermont in the summers and put on a bunch of plays and then try to bring them un unsuccessfully to New York, which was too expensive. And I would ride around on my messenger bike, scouting out plays from new writers. And someone handed me one by this punk kid named Aaron Sorkin <laughs> called Removing All Doubt. And I was like, 
okay, this is some of the best dialogue I've ever read in my life. And uh, it was an early play of his. And I reached out and just was started to try to kind of maybe get him to write something or see about doing that play. And then somewhere in there, I feel like you guys did a one act at the West Bank. You guys isn't including Josh? I saw it. I was the last not part of it. But that was, I think, the one act version of Hidden in This Picture. Right. Was that before A Few Good Men? Yeah. And Aaron was in it, no? Aaron was in it. Yeah. yeah. That was the West Bank Cafe prior to A Few Good Men. Yeah. I remember I invited him up to Vermont. I said, come on. We go to Vermont in the summers and we do plays and we swim in the quarry and it's really fun. Come on up. We'll send you a, I think it was like a People's Express, the equivalent of JetBlue in those days, um, ticket. And he came up. And we said, Dude, you know, we're going to read a play. He said, I have a new play, but it's going to be done on Broadway. Do you want to read it? <laughs> and we said, yeah. And we read an earlier, pretty early draft of A Few Good Men, which was remarkable. And then kind of watched him put it back in his bag and like, okay, that's not available. And um, Did you read the role of Jack Ross? I think it's possible I read the early iteration of Daniel Caffey up sure. there in the uh, rehearsal hall in Vermont. And had a really fun weekend and found Aaron to be as wild and charming. And he made quite a splash with the ladies. Speaking of making a splash, though, Aaron didn't swim in a quarry, did he? No, I think he studiously avoided that part. Yeah, because I don't see that. That's an image I have trouble with. I just remember him being at like a kind of evening party at one of these deserted summer dorms with us, kind of saying, you guys have a good racket here. (laughs) (laughs) There's no grownups and you just do plays and eat ice cream and go to the quarry. And then the next thing I heard, I was probably a year or two later, I was there doing plays again in Vermont in the summer. And I got a call saying, there's this play on Broadway. Do you want to come down and read for a part? And I conned a ride off somebody. And I went down and I read for the Daniel Caffey part. And it went okay. And I went back to Vermont. And I was literally, I was starving. I was selling hair accessories on the street and doing, I think, an evening of one acts at night. And then they called me and they said, you got a call back. So I had to get another ride down to New York a couple of weeks later. Hmm. Then I got the call saying, yeah, Tom Hulse is doing it. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I'm going to sell some hair. So I'm going to really be successful at selling hair accessories then instead. <laughs> and then I got a call like two weeks later into my despondency saying, oh, the guy who was playing Jack Ross quit. And uh, would you be interested in playing the other part? And I mean, no one has ever said yes faster in their life. Hmm. And next thing you know, I was in a rehearsal hall in um, Manhattan meeting this talented young newcomer named Josh Molina. (laughs) And wearing hillbilly hats. And we brought it full circle. Coming up with (laughs) nicknames. Wait a minute. This is the part I forgot. Who was originally cast in the role? I think it was Dylan Baker. I think the part got some more scenes after he left. Hmm. And, you know, he's one of my favorite actors. Great actor. I was intimidated by that they'd even seen him read any of it. So many great memories, and many of which really cannot be shared in the interest of <laughs> family fair. But one I do remember is opening night party, I think in D.C. at the Kennedy Center. And you went out to get the review, like the early review. And then you came back to the party. And I was like, so? And you said, it's not great. I threw it in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't great. And I just remember, I don't want to bring this back. Yeah, no. I just said, it's still not out. I couldn't find any newspapers. You made the absolutely right call. <laughs> yeah, I think Aaron has thanked me for that. I'm sure. In retrospect. And then there was the New York opening night. Yes. <laughs> where we, you know, it was like, the weird thing is it was very popular. There was standing ovations all every night. People loved the play. Yeah. But I think Frank Rich was a little dismissive in a way that I, while I respect him a lot, thought was 
kind of bogus because, you know, there's all this talk at the time, like, where are the American young playwrights? And here was a 29-year-old who'd written this cool play, kind of old school, and uh, it was really working. And they were a little, I didn't think they really gave, like, this is a hell of a first play. And um, we were all a bit, again, once again, despondent. Couldn't keep the review out of Sardis. I do remember <laughs> that one of my first jobs in New York was that I was a, a maligned and abused bar back at Sardis. And when we walked in for the opening night thing, this uh, must have been seven years later. Must have felt a bunch good. of the old waiters looked at me like, oh my God. <laughs> Never thought I'd see that guy make it. <laughs> Barback makes good. Yeah. And the reviews, the, that New York Times review was a bit of a missile on our side. But then um, they started, Liz Smith loved the play, the legendary gossip colonist. And so did Catherine Hepburn. And pretty soon we were doing really good box office. Yeah, that's right. I remember Catherine Hepburn being an early booster. I had forgotten about that. She came into my dressing room. I was like, oh, oh my God, it's Catherine Hepburn's in my dressing room. I'm pretty sure she made it up and to I, the third floor at a fairly advanced age to say hi to the grunts in, in my communal dressing room, which was <laughs> impressive. Yeah, that was a highlight. So you went from A Few Good Men to making a memorable appearance in Sports Night towards the end of that series. Was that the next time you, you reconnected with Aaron? I remember one call where Aaron said, I'm doing this pilot sports night. I, I would like you to come in and read for one of the parts. And I was so kind of flattered and interested and really wanted to do it. But I had my, my acting career had been going so well that I was working as a screenwriter. <laughs> and I had to say no to Aaron <laughs> and to this incredible script. And I was a little bit destroyed by it. Which role were you supposed to read for? You know, one of the ensemble. I just know it wasn't Josh's <laughs> part. Okay. <laughs> it was one of the sportscasters. And then I showed up uh, to do uh, the mysterious Calvin Traeger, fresh off an appearance on the New York stage in a Turgenev play. So I had some of the sketchiest sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And do you remember my tormenting you during one scene with a remote-controlled fart machine? You know, I had forgotten. I had blocked that out because it was so painful. <laughs> It was like he unkind. did put a fart machine, and a lot of people really played along with it well. And I was like, it's not me. It's not me. I'm, I'm a guest star. I would never fart. <laughs> <laughs> There's an episode of our podcast where Josh told this story, and I think it's the hardest I've laughed on this podcast for just saying something. He made me cry as he described your reaction to the fart machine. Well, I just remember at a certain point, it was clear, it was explicitly clear what I was doing, and I still kept doing it. And you, I just remember... <laughs> I remember Clark, just stop. Josh, please stop. Tommy Schlamy, I think, was directing it. And I just was like, stop it. You're going to get Tommy Schlamy <laughs> mad at me somehow. Yeah. Um, well, I went a little too far as I tend to. You're kidding. Wait a minute. Hold on now. Newsflash. <laughs> Bombshell. But then I also remember that I almost lost my life on sports night. What's that? What happened? Not many people know this story. I really feel like it's a scoop here on the TWWW. <laughs> they were serving snacks. I was very hungry. And they had served snacks at Crafty, which were really large, round raviolis, really large. And I was sitting there with the plastic fork trying to manageably cut this thing in half with the fork. And all of a sudden I hear that thing that a guest will really send a chill to a guest actor's spine, which was, Clark Gregg, where's Clark Gregg? And all of a sudden I accidentally slurped in the entire ravioli and it immediately stuck in my throat. And I was trying to, you know, not embarrass myself. I was kind of pushing on my own solar plexus and trying to make it come up, but it wouldn't come up. I may have tried to wash it down, unfortunately, with some water, which then that got stuck. So I was also drowning. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I go over to the guy at the craft service thing and I remember somewhere in my dying moments, you're supposed to make the choking sign. So I start making the choking sign to this guy and he thinks I'm doing some goofy clown bit and he starts like putting his, his thumbs in his ears and wiggling his fingers and making faces <laughs> oh, back God. at me. And I was like, oh my God, the last thing I'm gonna see in life is this idiot. <laughs> <laughs> doing kooky clown gestures because he doesn't know I'm giving him the choking sign. And then finally, I think in just anger at that, I managed to get this ravioli up and walk over there like nothing was happening, pumping with adrenaline. And then all of a sudden I start hearing the sound of the fart machine. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did two episodes there. I was told that if the show came back, Kelvin Traeger might be a player. You're in the very play. final episode of the series now. Yes. It's a good show, Dan. Anybody who can't make money off sports night should get out of the money-making business. Said Aaron to ABC through Clark as Calvin Traeger. Yeah. Instead, they got out of the sports night business. <laughs> I thought that those, those last two episodes were so well done. It never occurred to me that there was a possibility that there would have been a third season. I figured at that point it was clear, you know, it had come to its natural conclusion. Oh, no, no. And what is the final episode? Quo Vadimus? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I must say, an incredibly passionate group of people, given that it was two episodes, and I think I was barely in the first one, come up to me to this day like Calvin Traeger. And they quote that line, if you can't make money on Sportsnet. <laughs> yeah. Like the Sportsnet has very ardent fans. You know what actually just hit me in a wave of memory? You were there mm. when we were shooting the pilot and you were very encouraging to me. I remember specifically, something I just remember is a specific thing you said to me is I had that big monologue interview with Felicity and Sabrina. Now, yes, sure, indeed. I can tell you what Ewing and Oakley are shooting from the field and that you're not going to stop John Starks if he squares up to the basket and put any defensive pressure on Charlie Ward. He's going to fold like a cheap card table. But if you're asking me for genuinely sophisticated analyses, and I sense that you are, <laughs> you've got to give me some time, at least 20 minutes. And Clark came over and said, oh, I'm like watching you do this again and again. It's knocking the, the weights off the bat. You've been swinging with the weights on, knocking them off, and then going out there and doing the speech. I just remember, I remember that specific, nice, encouraging thing that you said to me. That's nice. What the hell was I doing there in the pilot? That was kind of, I guess you were being a, a good friend to the many people you knew. Involved. Oh, yeah. I think you're right. But you were there. I know you were. Yeah, you're right. God, I'm a good guy. You really are. <laughs> <laughs> Bombshell. Who knew? Bombshell, thanks. You were killing it. And what else? Oh, well, and then... Oh, there's this other show. Yes. That's right. Oh, yeah. So then I remember watching the West one and going, oh, my God, I love this show so much. He's killed it because it was, you know, I'd loved American President. I think we'd all seen each other at Aaron's wedding. Yeah. In the interim. That was that before West Wing? I think it yeah. was. And then... Uh, I got married and I was, we would watch West Wing and just marvel at how much we loved it. And sure enough, I got a call one day saying, will you come play this FBI agent? I didn't realize, especially given my history of punk rock and criminal behavior, that <laughs> I was about to embark on a life of people wanting to call me agent this or that. And uh, I said, sure. And it was a scene with Rob Lowe. It was a really cool scene about or a couple of scenes that was about um, someone who was possibly a communist sympathizer and Rob wanting to clear him from kind of a McCarthyist stuff and me having to reveal cryptically that, well, no, actually, the reason we're resisting this is because this guy actually really was a communist who That's was right. working with the Russian government against our government, which I thought was a, always thought, thought was an interesting component to the evils of McCarthyism was that some of these guys were really spies. It's funny watching the West Wing for again for this podcast in this sort of slower form for me because I at this point think of 
special agent Casper in a certain way. I think of him as in the mode that he is in currently in season four, where he's a friend of the administration. He's someone we're familiar with who comes back and has a great relationship. So when we, when we got to that episode on the podcast, I was surprised a little bit to remember how contentious that first scene was between you and Rob Lowe. The man was named by Joe McCarthy as part of- 20 years of treason? Yes, which was called at the time a conspiracy on a scale so immense as to dwarf any previous venture in the history of man. Somebody wake me up from this because I think you just deputized Joe McCarthy into your argument. That's right, it's testy. I I thought, okay, I'll be a bad guy if if you ever want to use me as a bad guy again. And then, uh, but then the next time, I think the next time I went in, it was much more, uh, it was, I think it was, you'll tell me because I- I don't know, but it was the scene where I, Josh Lyman's walking me in somewhere, and I'm like, hang on, this wall is curved. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's a great moment, very endearing moment. Yeah, I really came to love old Agent Casper, and it was weird. People, the West Wing was so popular, and people loved it so much that it was one of the first things people kind of started recognizing me from. And here's the $64,000 question. Is there a straight line to be drawn between Agent Casper and Coulson? Well, in the minds of the Marvel fandom, who seem to have a fair amount of overlap with the West Wing fandom, sure. Mike Casper is Agent Coulson's real name. Ah, aha. <laughs> and that actually he went after his time at the FBI. He went and spent some time training with Nick Fury and adopting his new nom de guerre, which was Philip J. Coulson. Mm-hmm. And your first appearance in the Marvel Universe is in Iron Man? Yes, and it was a very small I got a call saying they want you to do this part. I mean, they're sending you this, a couple of the scripts, his script pages. And it was, you know, it was a guy, I think his name was literally Agent. Huh. And, he, and it was about five or 10 lines and they wanted to make a three picture deal. <laughs> and I thought, this is crazy. Why would they, the guy's name is Agent. Why do they want a three picture deal? And I feel like I saw this cast with Gwyneth and Jeff Bridges and Robert. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to get so cut out of this. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a moment of idiotic hesitation and my wife was like, are you nuts? You love comic books. Go do this. And nine years later, thanks, honey. Right. At what point did you realize that this five line role had turned into what it is? No, it was a, it was a constant joke that, you know, they said, you know, well, they kept the John, who's a really good guy, Favreau said was not Obama's speechwriter, who's also apparently a very good guy. And I love his podcast. Almost as much as I love yours. But well said. I was, I was about to demand that. <laughs> he came to me at a certain, at a certain point. He said, uh, you know, they're kind of, they're digging what you're doing here. They're digging Agent Coulson. And are you free? Because they might start adding some stuff. And I was like, oh, I will make sure that I'm very free. And, uh, you know, they let him. Pretty soon I had a scene with Robert where I said, where I was being sassy and he was being sassy. And I said, I was from the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement Logistics Division. And I thought, I went over to the cousin. Like, is that Shield? Am I from Shield? And um, they're like, "Yeah, shh, don't tell anybody." And then they just kind of would say, "Oh, listen, there's a couple of scenes in uh, Iron Man Two. We want Major Coulson to show back up." I was like, "Get out of here." Okay, cool. And then I was doing one of those scenes, and they and they said, "Okay, this time go in and say, I gotta go, Mr. Stark. I gotta go. I'm leaving town. I'm going to New Mexico." Uh, and I did it, and he said he would say it's a magical place, and I would say, and I think I improvised. You have no idea. And they and I finally, after about four or five takes, I was like. Oh my God, a better actor would have asked this by now. What's in New Mexico? <laughs> and the uh, amazing Marvel exec, Lou D'Esposito, said, Oh, Thor. Thor's in New Mexico. Didn't anybody talk to you about this? You have a good part in Thor. Wow. And I was like, What? <laughs> <laughs> and since then, it's just been like a kind of a comic book fan's make a wish thing that just keeps going on. It's like I defy the doctor's expectations. That's fantastic. Until Avengers, when I very much didn't defy right. them. Right. <laughs> and you still 
came back. And you still came back, right? <laughs> still came back. There's one more West Wing story, which is I had to go to Tommy and Aaron when I was doing an episode and say, you have me down for Friday, but that's my wife's due date. Huh. And they said, oh, got it. Okay, well, thanks for the heads up. Listen, obviously, if you're going to have a baby, you're going to have a baby. And we won't expect you to come in. And I said, oh, thank you. And sure enough, on Friday, uh. I did that thing that an actor never does in their whole life. I called up the AD at five in the morning and said, my wife's in really extreme labor right now, so I, I don't think I can come in. And they were like, okay, how far along? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, TV production. I think I'm going to probably be kind of busy with this for, for most of the day. And they were like, okay, you sure? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand the show must go on, but I'm, I'm really going to, I'm thinking I'm going to be here at the hospital today. And they were really cool. And I guess they changed some of Martin's scenes around for that day. And then late, late, late that night when the, my daughter had just been born, I get my phone, I get this call saying, so where are you now? How's it going now? Wow. And I was like, listen, I, I, I'm really, the baby's out, but I'm still not coming in. <laughs> I had a similar experience, but my crisis was uh, the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Yes, very similar. Yeah. And I'm grateful to this day that they actually kind of gave me the slack to let me have a baby. Do you know, in the casting of Agent Coulson, if Agent Casper played it all into it? As Josh said, you have a very impressive and long body of work. Was Favreau a West Wing fan? I asked him that once, and he said no. I hadn't, huh. I hadn't seen that yet. At that point, well, I was kind of surprised. I thought he, I was like, yes, you, you did. You just don't remember. Um, but, <laughs> but um, I got to say it was, it was at a time when I had, you know, I really had been an actor and it was always my dream was acting and I loved writing and trying to make little films, but you know, to be a, such a fan of the show and to show up and it was such a, there was such a bunch of New York theater people, Josh. And, um, oh man, um, Everybody. It was so welcoming. Alice and Janney, people I had met before, and of course, Leo. John Spencer. Who I had seen in plays and just was such a huge fan of it. He was one of those gentlemen who came up very, like the first day when I felt like I was going to ruin the show with my four lines. <laughs> and was like, oh, wow. Well, I'm so glad. Look, I'm so glad you're here. We're so lucky we got you. <laughs> and I'm not sure he knew who I was, but it was so classy. And it made it just, I went, oh, okay. This is the greatest family Everybody was so kind of kind and generous and the directors and the Missianos and um, Vince still directs some of our show. And when they, huh. when I had the first meeting with the showrunners, Jed Mercer, Whedon and Jeff Bell on our show, I said, I just want one thing. They said, what do you want? You're number one on the call sheet. What do you want? I said, I just want to do table reads. Hmm. And they kind of looked at me like, it's an hour lunch. We're talking about an hour lunch. <laughs> I was like, I know, but can we just try it? And they said, okay. And they, we still do it to this day. And it's really just, and everyone kind of loves them. And I really, it's some, just one of the things I got from Aaron. And That's very cool. It is a great to have that moment where everybody sees everyone else's, even though it's an initial, it's just a read, but you see everyone else's performance. You kind of have a little bit of that communal moment and before you all go off to shoot your scenes separately. Yeah. When we were talking about your memorable line delivery in our last episode, Josh mentioned that he felt that it was a product of a particular school of acting that you're a part of or, or training that you did. You've been in um, a bunch of David Mamet things as well as Aaron's work. And, um, and, I was and part of developing a technique with the Atlantic Theater Company. I would say no. Yeah, that's what I was wondering is did that is that the school of acting that Josh is sort of referring to? Can you tell us just more about your way into these lines because they are so indelibly yours? Oh, thanks. Um I had to turn that part off because it was making me self-conscious. I was like, <laughs> uh, 
people I don't want to think about how it how it comes out. I, you know, I've heard that before. I stumbled into a class at NYU with being taught by this young playwright, Dave Mamet, and um, a young actor named Bill Macy. And um, they were remarkable and generous and had very, very forceful ideas. They taught the class together? Yeah, they did. I was really blown away by them. And they definitely espouse a very minimalist, Meisner-based, improvisatory, stripped-down style. And I, I would I'd say that I picked up whatever that is from watching May, Macy work hmm. and doing mammoth scenes and their kind of philosophy of it. And at the same time, there is a, I would say, not specifically hyper-realistic style to Mammoth. It's poetic in its own very human way. And I think Aaron's writing is very different, but it's in the same category. It's musical. It's got its own rhythm. It's more than realism. And so when I got a chance to act some of Aaron's stuff, it felt very similar to me in a way. Have you ever been in a, a situation where you've brought that kind of technique to material instinctively and found that it didn't work? I've certainly had directors who felt that way. It's funny, I'm so not conscious of it as being a style. I probably found that place and that school of thought because it's where my aesthetic leanings lay mm -hmm. and probably how I am as a person. There are so many moments and things that you've been in where it's not just the line, it's also your performance of the line, where, where things, bits of dialogue that you've delivered have stayed with me for so long. The oh. making money business is one. Clearly, I'm not the only one in that. But even, I think if we've talked about this on the podcast too, there's a line in, in Good Company that you say to Topher Grace when you say, Wow, you're the new me. No, I'm the new me. <laughs> That's very I think about that line. I think about that delivery all the time. I like that movie very much, and but that is my favorite moment of the whole thing. Oh, that's nice. You know, it's funny, the not to deflect from your very <laughs> valid phrase, but um, <laughs> what the theme you have found is that that's Paul White's and Mamet, Aaron, Paul White's. These are all playwrights who became screenwriters and film directors. There's a willingness to kind of make dialogue, take risks, and be kind of more than just conversational English that I think an actor's lucky well if they get to be part of. Well said. Clark, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been terrific. Thank you. And so I love the pod. Friend of the pod. Friend thank of the you, pod. Scrumpy. <laughs> I'm really honored to be here. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much to our guest, Clark Gregg. And thanks to you for listening to us once more. And thanks to Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller for helping us make this show. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You know where to find us. You can follow Clark Gregg. He's on Instagram and Twitter, too at Clark Gregg, and Gregg has three Gs. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia, which is a collection of intriguing and exciting story-driven podcasts. Check them all out at radiotopia.fm. And thanks to everyone who supported our fundraising campaign, which is now concluded. Yes, hugely successful. Incredible. Our goal was to reach 20,000 donors, and... Did we get there? It was an ambitious goal. We actually got to 23,000, over 23,000 donors. So thank you. Incredible. That means next fundraiser, we're going to have to break 25,000. But that's, it's a year away. We'll still be here. You can buy some merch at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You can check out our tour dates at thewestwingweekly.com slash live. Come out and see us. We're doing a bunch of live events. It's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to seeing you. With Thanksgiving coming up, we're going to take the next few days to spend time with our family, so we're not going to have an episode next week, but we'll be back the week after that to talk about process stories. We'll be joined by a special guest, 
Joanna Gleason, who'll be joining us to talk about her final episode as Jordan Kendall. Okay. Okay. What's next? Radiotopia. Big thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.